you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department, just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's Rick and Greg. We're back again with Risk Management Monthly for June 2015. Now, Rick, we've had a great run of guests this month. It's just you and I. But you know what we ought to do? We ought to send out a shout out to uh, Mark Calvert, who was on the show last month. He really is a good old boy. And I liked him a lot. Yeah, he uh, reached a certain threshold where my sister, who does the notes, said he was really, really good because she actually listens to to, to, uh, generate those notes. And she doesn't say that very often. So, Mark, you've... uh, You've hit it out of the park, at least with my sister. And we yeah. do we do want to have you back. You were uh, so generous with your time, but you made it clear, actually, that you had fun and wanted to come back. So we're going to invite you back. But yes, now yeah. this month is cleanup month. Yeah, that's what you get for being polite and nice to Rick and Greg, because we don't have a lot of friends. You know, you give, well, that, you know, my parents would say, you give them an inch and they take a yard. Yeah, yeah, that's us. Now, Rick, I've got to give you a two minutes of something funny that happened to me today. I got an email from Rosanna Sakura, who is an associate professor of emergency medicine at Morgantown, is, West Virginia. Is University she related to, to Rosanna, Rosanna Dana? No, I don't think she's related to Rosanna, but she has listened to us for years from the beginning. She wrote to me today saying that they're putting together, they have a wellness committee in ASAP, and they were wondering whether I could do a like a 20-minute DVD, like a TED Talk on wellness. You mean what not to do? <laughs> well, I, I sent her back a letter because uh, I, had, I had to send a response on this. And basically what I said was asking Greg Henry to give a wellness talk is like asking a polka band to do the Jim Morrison songbook. <laughs> you just don't do it. No matter how correct the notes are, it doesn't sound right. I mentioned the fact that I'm fat, I'm old, I've had, I've had a six-vessel bypass. My favorite uh, fruit is the maraschino cherry, <laughs> which I try and rescue from the bottom of all my glasses with another drink until I stop trying. I don't do anything physical. My only exercise is running other people down and jumping to conclusions. I'm basically the last person in the world you would ask to write a wellness chapter or give this talk. So what I said was, sure, why not? I mean, you've already blown it. Everybody in the country knows who I am. Your credibility is gone in a nanosecond. It's, uh, it's, well, it's just funny what they ask you to do when you get old. Well, you know, maybe they're not talking about uh, physical wellness, but maybe mental uh, wellness and well-being. But then again, you've got your issues there, too. So I mean. Absolutely. Absolutely. The last thing you want is me. But you know what? They've been good about it, so what can I say? You never right, you never turn down anybody, do you? Well, there was, this, there, there was this guy once in Cleveland, but we'll pass on that one, Rick. Hey, listen, I, I, uh, this is analogous to something that I was re- recently asked to do by a, a colleague of Michelle Lynn's, who this young physician was gathering notes from a variety of physicians on how they worked efficiently and how they got so much accomplished in their working habits, et cetera, et cetera. And, and she asked me if I would do that. Now, Greg... <laughs> You, you want to talk about somebody who works efficiently? It's not me. I right. said the same thing. I basically am a procrastinator. I'm a, a last minuter. I work long, long hours I, when I probably could, if I worked smarter, could work less hours. You see what my office looks like here behind me on Skype. I yes. need a filing system. I need a helper kind of thing. I'm yeah, the last person. Asked, Rick, who's ever asked you about this? Just give them, have them give me a phone call and I'll fill them in on you. But while we're at it, we should get down to, to the letters and who's writing. Oh, oh, um, letters? Writing? I, yeah, yeah. I thought we, we were that? just chatting here. No, no. 
David Dubois, I don't know how he got a French name in Wellington, New Zealand, but David writes, and he's curious about the idea of restoring, restoring uh, capacity by medical treatment. What he's talking about here is very clear. It's when, you, when they come in with heroin and you give them Narcan, they are going to have five minutes of some intelligence. He says, do you have a right then to hold them down, to do this, to do that? And I will point this out because I've been involved in a case of this. David, you knew or should have known that because of the nature of that drug, if they get better with Narcan, they're going to be a problem. So, no, because they can speak to you for five minutes, you still need to take some action. And you're perfectly within the realm of reasonableness to hold that person down because I I guess I never saw anybody I woke up with Narcan, A, number one, who I liked, or number two, who didn't go back down again uh, and have uh, mental impairment. It was quick up and quick down. So don't feel, don't feel because you've gotten them back um, that they're perfectly well to go. This isn't blood sugar. This is another problem. Well, you know, Gregory, I think you and I may have a little disagreement here, my friend, because this note came in response to the article that we reviewed that went through this idea about who can do what to restrain patients and the fact that they do have rights when they are lucid and that, in fact, it is our job to take a patient who may be without capacity, and if we can restore capacity to do that and allow them to give us their position. And that may be because they're hypoxic. It may be because they are hypoglycemic. It may be because they are under the influence of a narcotic or an opiate, should I say. More yeah, yeah. Hold, exactly. hold, hold on, Moose Breath. One second. We all make clinical decisions about patients. Did we really fix them? Are they going to go down again? You have to admit, Rick, and all the people you gave Narcan to at the county and that sort of thing, they were up and they were down again in ten minutes. Well, and- I uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily agree that they were up and down. And the fact of the matter is, is that I think that the, <laughs> in many cases you'll get some protracted period of lucency. And I think this idea that everybody's going to go down and they're all going to go into a coma when they walk out the door. These people are shooters, and I've generally got great skills at determining how much opiates they need or want and maybe this is a case of an overdue but the fact of the matter is this this whole article greg was about i remember the article and it was the kowalski case that came from the new york supreme court Uh, yeah yeah exactly but what but that wasn't something where they could say with with reasonable medical certainty that there was a good chance they were going to go down again and i you know i think we have to use some practical judgments here if it was your brother who went down you wouldn't let him go rick if i had 45 minutes or an hour of lucency and during that period i said to you listen you could go down again and die and i don't recommend that you go down again and die and you're welcome to stay here and we'll take care of you and if you you qualified it you qualified you said 45 minutes that's not usually the time frame for people with who are going to slip back into the altered mental status. I agree with you. If you watch them for 45 minutes and they're fine, you probably don't have a right. But that doesn't mean just because they've suddenly stood up after the medication that they're free to go out. But we have a right to disagree on this. So, uh, David, maybe we haven't solved your problem after all. Who knows? Well, no, I think that I was kind of taking the the bent of that article that says we do this a little bit too casually. And yes, you're right. You're right. There's no jury that's going to basically really nail you because you tried to do the right thing and you held this person down and you took their rights away from them. Nobody cares about that. This is more theoretical than not. Probably is. So go on to the robot story here, Rick. Chip Potter, who uh, is a frequent writer... Very frequent. And, and Chip, we love your your emails on things in the Wall Street Journal. Keep hey, them coming. You know, I don't. I gave up my subscription to the Wall Street Journal because, Chip, you don't have to worry. Chip's going to send you every study. Paper. I know it. I know. He really does a good job. Anyway, this is from the 9th, uh, April 9th, 2015 issue of the Wall Street Journal by Baron Lerner, entitled The Robot Will See You Now. This is about how uh, automated medicine is becoming. It's about telemedicine. It's about 
electronic records. It's about all of these kinds of things that are going on. It's, it's actually kind of interesting because I just attended a presentation by Eric Topol, who... I know Eric. Yeah, he used to be here at Michigan. Very, very good guy. He was he used to be a heart doctor, uh, but now he's now he's a uh, a futurist. He's uh, a philosopher at this point, and he writes books about the future of medicine and about all of the technology that's going to be involved. And gave a talk about all of the things that you can do now with your smartphone in terms of your heartbeat, your blood alcohol, your this, that, and the other th- thing, uh, EKG. But in any case, there was a common theme here. The robot will see you now triggered this person's response. A friend of him noted, quote, this article did not do justice as to how tedious and time-consuming the EMR is, not to mention the reams of cookie-cutter notes that say nothing about the patient but satisfy hospital and insurance regulations. I don't think we needed an article in the Wall Street Journal to make that observation. But in any case... It's interesting you you bring that point up, the cookie-cutter comments, because I just got a chart in to look at on medical malpractice, and every time the nurses put something in the nursing note, the whole damn note repeats. So we have like 80 pages or 90 pages of nursing notes, but each one may have like one little thing new on it. What happens is we've lost the kernel of truth in this mountain of material. You've got to really search through to find what actually is new or been added to the damn chart. It's a mess. Well, you know, I wanted to use this opportunity to kind of, um, I wrote a column. I think it may be, I think it's coming out in EP Monthly this uh, this month. It's, it's related to my view of triage. Right. Uh, <laughs> Rick, This. let me just tell you right now, we've given similar talks on this, and it will get you no friends in the nursing community. I promise you that. I think the words were intrusive and often irrelevant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was my adjectives. But in any case, that's uh, for your reading pleasure in an upcoming issue of EP Monthly. Uh, Greg, you have one coming up here now from Kathy Nelson-Horan. Kathy responded to our recent comments regarding the potential liability hospitals may have for not adequately and safely staffing the emergency department. This is a complex bag of worms because I don't know of a case, Kathy, where they've sued the hospital successfully for not having one more nurse or one less nurse, one more tech, one less tech. In general, There is no guideline to follow here. And one thing we don't have in America is surge capacity. All of us have worked in emergency departments where, yeah, on average, we see people in 20 or 30 minutes. But on Saturday night or Friday afternoon, it may be longer than that. Wouldn't you say that's true, Rick? I mean, that surge capacity is very difficult to deal with as a medical concept and very difficult as a legal concept. Well, surge capacity in most emergency departments is fairly predictable. I mean, you've already pointed out that the weekends may be busier or Mondays may be busier. And the fact of the matter is is that, that if it's a repetitive phenomenon, then it's really not a surprise and that you're supposed to respond to it. McDonald's has surge capacity, lunch and dinner. And Kathy, she makes a lot of good points. And she says, this is a bottom line issue with the administration. Well, you bet it is. But the fact of the matter is, is that, and you mentioned that there's no particular science to this. I can tell you the science. When they're going out the door, where they've been waiting in the ER for four or five hours, that's, that basically, I don't need any science. This place is out of control and is dangerous. Well, we've all had those experiences, even in pretty well-run shops. Oh, yeah, occasionally uh, that, yeah. It you, does happen. You have and the hemophiliac bus accident. We got it. But, right, you know, right, this yeah. is common occurrence, routine occurrence in many emergency departments across this country. And she also mentions that this idea here is that they can't get doctors to work and that there's a shortage of emergency physicians. Mm-hmm. And uh, she particularly mentions getting coverage at night in the emergency department with physicians. And what's the solution to that, Greg, of getting doctor coverage at night? Pay them. 
I, I, I mean, this, if it takes, if, you, if you've lived this long and you can't figure out what motivates humans, it's sex, money, and violence. If they're afraid you're going to beat the crap out of them, no good sex, and there's no adequate money, people don't do anything. But there's no question that, that you need to have some sort of reward system. The other thing is, how long should midnight shifts be? I personally believe the data would suggest shorter midnight shifts are better and more overlap time in those shifts so that a physician can finish up and get home. And this is, this is critical. All this research says get home while it's still dark if you can. So you get, you get some uninterrupted sleep. It's better for well, you. Well, you know, Billy Mallon wrote a nice essay for EMA about three or four months ago, <laughs> maybe in that neighborhood, about the physiology and sleep and all the things that emergency physicians should know about getting sleep if you work night shifts in terms of you're supposed to go home and be get home in the dark. You're supposed to wear sunglasses driving home. You're supposed to have a very dark room when you... You go to sleep, and it's all about this, um, all of these circadian kinds of things. And he gave a lot of good tips about yeah, that. It, it, it's my particular feeling that uh, fatigue driving is as big a problem in America as drunk driving. I don't doubt that. You know, each one of us has driven home from a midnight shift and could feel our brain, you know, stop at a stoplight. You know, the road's going straight. I'll hold the wheel straight. I can take a little nap in the meantime. (laughs) In the middle, yeah. Well, or better stay awake and text. That would be a good thing. Well, the idea here is the solution to night shifts sounds kind of simplistic. It's called pay them. And there will be some number uh, at which you will get your night shifts covered. And And basically, you have to take it away from the day docs to pay in a night docs. That's, that's called the sleep tax. And I think it was Adam Smith who wrote about this in 1776, and he was exactly right. The free market will will determine who does what, and uh, we need to talk about well, it. You know, so, in some it, cases, the hospitals may want, need to offer some supplementation, although most hospitals now are, unless you're in the rural areas, are not interested in supplementing anything. Oh, but let's way, get back to Kathy, this thing about— Kathy has a point here that we ought to get back to. And that is, it is worthwhile going to the hospital, to administration, and saying, we think this is a problem, and we're here to help you with your problem, hospital, because you have a responsibility to reasonably staff. And I think when the data, as you pointed out, Rick, when the data says every 4th of July we're going to have this many patients show up, then staffing ought to reflect that. She also points out that their inability to get emergency physicians is being traded off by bringing on advanced practice clinicians, and there is the issue about supervision, and and she points out that it is virtually impossible to supervise them to so to the point where you're going to see every patient, and yet there's still the needle in the haystack phenomenon, but that's just the nature of the beast. Well, the real problem here is that if you're charging the 100% level, you better have seen the patient. If you're charging the 85% level, okay, then you're there for supervision as necessary. But uh, where we're seeing complaints now in med mal cases is where they've been seen by a, uh, a advanced practice clinician. Isn't that the politically correct term now, Rick? Advanced practice yes, clinician. Yes, actually, it is. Advanced practice clinician, yes. APC, which is a lot of syllables, unfortunately. PAs, now I've, I've read in clinician reviews that PAs want to be called officially now physician assistants. There was a move to call them physician associates, but their official position is we're okay with physician assistants. Yeah. Now, the well, nurses you- are another story. The, the nurses now, it's getting a little bit tough because they have this big move to have all of them get get these PhDs. And in some states, they have basically uh, regulated that nurses who are PhDs cannot introduce themselves as doctors who are nurse practitioners. And they shouldn't. 
because that, that's a misrepresentation at that moment in time. Well, they that's have a, a PhD, but the fact of the matter is that in common parlance, it is not considered to be anything other than a physician. Right. Uh, they are not a doctor of medicine at that moment in time. All right, All right. Kathy, moving on. that helps you out, terrific. Let's go on with Tony. Tony, uh, how am I going to say his last name here? Macassate? Macassate? Come on, help me, Greg. Jerry, uh, Jerry Hopkins usually does this right. for me. I like it. Anyway, Tony writes that he's concerned about time stamps on EMRs, and I think you ought to be concerned about this. The Benchmarking Alliance, as you may know, is this group of hospitals that provide data once a year into this huge pool largely handled by uh, Jim Augustine, who puts it together and does a fantastic job every year. The Benchmarking Alliance is a nonprofit organization, has over a 1,000 hospitals contributing information, has an annual meeting that uh, is absolutely terrific. But in any case, they have a thread where people write in and talk about things that in their emergency department related to management that they are concerned about. Uh, there has been a very recent thread about this topic. It's about timestamps and the issue about timestamps being charting timestamps rather than, in fact, when the actual event that you're charting took place. And he's making the point that their attorneys feel that timestamps should be amended transparently to reflect the true time that the process or observation occurred and not when it was charted. Uh, 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 uh. Be very careful here. It, by the way, this has nothing to do whether it's an electronic record or a handwritten record. We chart, we tend to chart at the end of an event after we've examined the patient. We don't run over and say, at 12.02, I looked in his eyes. At 12.04, I felt the belly. We write the exam up at a certain point in time. I think people recognize that. What is not recognized oftentimes is what's going on in a critical situation. That's why we have nurses chart what's going on during codes. You know, 12.04, the tube is attempted for the first time. <laughs> 12.05, the tube is attempted for the second time. These sorts of things are charted as they are occurring. But most of our lives, Rick, have been spent retrospectively reflecting on the history and physical and treatment we've given, hasn't it? Well, you know, I, I agree with that. But I also agree that when there are particularly sick patients, and it's important that the treatment be given in a timely manner and observations be given in a timely manner, that you kind of switch over and say, okay, I reassess the patient at X and X, and the patient's oxygen level was declining, and as a result, we did this or that or the other thing. I do think that there could be substantial gaps between when care occurs and documentation occurs, and if you want to make a record that is going to defend your practice because this patient is particularly sick. We're not talking about every Tom, Dick, and Harry patient, but I think that in certain cases, you want to switch over to the fact that you're documenting when things occurred, not when you wrote about them. And I think that, that this is a problem because as an example, one hospital I know, you know, the hospitals now are reporting door to provider time. Right. And my thought was door-to-provider time is when they entered the door and they saw a provider being you or a, a advanced practice clinician. And that time, whatever that time was, that was the door-to-provider time. But no, 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 it's not that simple. I ran into a hospital recently where the door-to-provider time is determined by the time that the first order is placed into the EMR. Now... What does that have to do with the true door-to-provider time? They've, they've, they've bastardized this. This is door-to-order time because this machine gives them a timestamp of when that occurred, and that becomes in the chart. And so they've kind of swapped out the true meaning of this for something that was convenient but is wrong. Well, I think, I think that the wise clinician in difficult cases will note somewhere in his dictation uh, no matter how it's put in, at this time such and such happened. I can't, I can't express to our listeners how much time over my career in being reviewing all these medical legal cases. When something occurred, when did you call the consultant? When did he answer back? When did the actual 
discussion take place? When did he actually show his face in the door? All of those are important times when we when we get into talking about treatment modalities, i.e., should TPA have been given? Should they have gone to the cath lab? Should a chest tube been put in? All of these things are time dependent, and uh, the smart the smart clinician will stick a time in there somewhere. Here's the only thing you can't do is put a number in there which isn't the truth. Don't go back and modify anything, change anything that isn't the truth. Uh, be very careful because, again, with all these timestamps, they know when you've gone back in and readjusted something. Well, so you know, ultimately, you ultimately he wants our guidance, which is uh, very humbling to be asked for our guidance. But yeah. uh, but but I do think that you basically have the option to switch over and start putting down true times that patients are uh, seen or interventions occur when the patient is potentially quite sick. And I think if a patient's going to be intubated, I think if a patient's, you know, crashing, those that's when you want to get put time down to times that things are happening, not when they're being charted. Yeah, and more common is uh, sepsis and antibiotics. It's amazing when you actually look not when something is ordered, not when the physician made the decision that they were in septic shock, but when did the order actually go to pharmacy? How long did it take pharmacy to fill that order? When was it actually hung? And I can't tell you the number of cases I've seen where the physician thought that something was happening stat, and that was actually two and a half hours later or three hours later. Physicians don't actually know when a lot of things are happening in their own department. Well, I think uh, when it comes to ordering drugs due to the uh, CPOE process and the nursing charting process, that it's pretty much easy to go back and determine when an order was placed in a computer and when uh, the drug was given. I think it's much more difficult to talk about responding to bad blood gases and uh, responding to phone calls and those kinds of things where there's t a time urgent, but you don't have any machine that's basically tracking it for you like you, they do when you're doing ordering drugs. So that's that's my version of guidance. Yeah, okay. You, he's gotten guidance from us. And again, when in doubt, write down a note that we can understand. At such and such a time, I did this. We can defend that. Yeah. Next one. Farrell Varner responded uh, uh, to the issue of why doctors still order lots of tests despite major malpractice reform in various states. I mean, obviously, he, what he's really responding here to is that study we looked at that said even though Texas has less filings and has some pretty good laws about malpractice for emergency physicians, there was no change in the ordering of testing. And I think that's actually the case. And here's the problem. I think it's our time perspective. You can't change the physician culture in this country overnight. We've learned growing up from medical school into a residency, into training, we've learned habits which a few changes in the law are not going to reduce these things. It's going to be when the senior clinicians start doing less and less and more pointed testing that I think you're going to see behavior change. I think, I think in a lot of the residencies, there's very little supervision given to the residents as to when an expensive test is going to be ordered. Well, I will not engender my, uh, very many friends when I say it. I think often the faculty doesn't know the answer to that either. Yeah. Well, I, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely the case. But, you know, he th throws in some other comments that are pretty good. No doc wants to make an error. But the real question of that is, at what price, at what cost? I mean, if you don't want to make an error, why don't you have a uh, rectal exam every six months instead of every year? If you don't want to make an error, why don't change breast mammograms to every six months instead of every year or two? There's got to be some trade-off here between utility, the benefit here, and the amount of time we put into it. 
mean, th- we can't be the only country in the world that hasn't figured this out, and it's uh, strange. By the way, the the difference between the age ranges, young physicians and old physicians, it is true. Young physicians tend to do more testing than old docs. Well, you know, I don't know that I may disagree with you, my friend. Uh, well, there's a couple I, of papers. I understand the arguments, yep. A couple of papers that basically found no difference between the level of experience and the amount of ordering that was done. In his note to us, he said even in his own group, the ordering of CTs varies between 18% to 48%, depending on, I guess, what circumstance you're talking about. And variability is just rampant. I am fairly discouraged by our ability to make any change in how we practice independent of the facts. This is a generational kind of thing, and it's going to take multiple generations of physicians to change. And I think, as you mentioned before, people respond to money. If we can create some kind of ways where physicians are not incentivized, right now, the more you order, the more you get paid. It's like it's a a perversity kind of thing. And the physicians who are the more conservative you don't order that CAT scan. Well, the hospital doesn't make that 400 bucks from Medicare for that CAT scan. I understand. Doesn't this roll into Jim Lorenzano's response to the Waxman discussion we had with Dr. Waxman? Well, you know, that it actually, that interview occurred in EMA, I believe. And I apologize. I've gotten a few people who said, geez, Louise, Rick, you didn't give the guy a chance to speak. And in retrospect, I've learned that when I do an interview, the idea is to actually listen to what they have to say rather than giving my version of an interview of myself. Thank yeah. you very much. Well, you've learned from people on TV, Rick. <laughs> they don't really want to know what the guy has to say. They want to put their agenda across. But the comments that he puts forward here, he notes that he's worked in the VA system where it's pretty hard to get sued. They got to go after you through Federal Tort Claims Act. And even then, they don't sue you. They sue the government, not the doctor. So it's a pretty safe environment for for docs. But he says these are some of the most risk-averse physicians in the country. And they are not impressed individually in their practice by this either. The fact that they're defended by the federal government, it's hard to sue, it's this and that, they still order a lot of tests. So he says, I think in his comment, it was, if this most risk-averse group of practitioners he's ever encountered and says, good luck if you think you can make those in the rest of the medical community respond to that kind of improvement in practice. I agree with him. All right, but let's get off of this broken record and uh, move on to something more like Mike Ritter's paper. Well, this is about an Illinois uh, appellate court decision where they found an on-call urologist's advice to an emergency physician created a physician-patient relationship giving rise to a professional duty of care. And before everybody goes crazy on this, because I know that lots of people who are on call to the emergency department have said, see, if you put my name down, I'm going to be in trouble too. Well, this case, you have to go back to the facts of the case, Rick. The emergency doctor had found a five or six millimeter stone on a patient. He spoke to the urologist. I don't know whether they gave him Flomax or they did anything else, but basically the urologist gave treatment advice and was supposed to, at least according to the emergency physician, he was going to follow this patient up. Now, I'm not sure the reasons that he didn't follow the patients up, But the patient then went on to have urosepsis and had a very bad progress of disease. So, Rick, what does this mean? Does this mean everybody we talked to on the phone is now officially responsible for the patient? Actually, I think it's a little worse than uh, you may have outlined here because I don't think that the follow-up, if that urologist was going to follow up, was in fact the issue because what the court said was, number one, the urologist was on the official call panel to be the one to, to be spoken with if you get into an issue with urology. Number right. two, he was compensated for the consultation. This must be a hospital where they basically are 
paying doctors to take call. Call, right. And exactly. so <clears throat> this person got paid. So, so there goes good Samaritan all out the window, if you even consider that, which you can. Number three, this person, this urologist was consulted about this specific patient. It was not a generic question about what do you generally do in these cases. It was about Mr. Smith. Tell me what you want to do about Mr. Smith. And number four, this urologist was responsible for making decisions about the patient's care. Now, I'm not so sure about that because I think that the, the ER physician is ultimately the caring physician and that these are consultations and that you can listen to the consultation or you could ignore the consultation. So I think that that was my part of this problem. So this is an unusual decision. For those of you who want to look up the details of, of this case, it's Mackey versus Soroka, and it's the Illinois Court of Appeals, because what had happened is the reason the appellate court made a decision on this is they reversed an earlier decision by the lower court that allowed a motion to dismiss the urologist from the case. So there were people involved in this who said, whoa, 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 don't go there. We think that this guy is still involved in it. This is actually a, an important case for emergency physicians around the country. Because basically what it says is, if you call that guy about a specific case, he's going to be in the soup with you. There's going to be two people sitting in the defense defense box. This will just be one more reason for physicians not to want to take call. You know, having been an ER director for 25 years, I kind of, and it was, you know, maybe not fair, but I kind of took the position that physicians made their living, many of them, at the hospital. They made rounds, they did surgery, they did consultations. They made a lot of their living at the hospital. And one of the trade-offs for doing that is to take call and that many hands made light work of this process so that if you had 10 surgeons, it's, it's like once every three days. It's kind of like, come on, you can, de- you can do, it, do that. So that's the position I kind of took and the idea of getting paid, you know, that's a very, very slippery slope, that's for sure. Yeah, well, it, we, we don't know what to do with that part of it, but I, I think that this is the kind of thing, which is if you sit on the executive committee of your hospital, this is not a bad case to discuss and how you got there, just to remind everybody, hey, we're all in this together. The many hands analogy is a good one. We all got to row this boat, and this guy came in there. They should have taken care of the patient's problem, and to abandon this is not a good idea. You know, I just got a message from Diane. This is a, a totally unrelated to what we're talking about, but she's driving right now from our home to Arizona. We're going to see our grandkids in. They happen to live with my son and his wife, but we're, we're yeah, really, yes. young, you know, it's really the grandkids kind of thing. But she showed me a picture of a gas sign, a cost for gasoline in Arizona. $2.73 a gallon. You know what it is here? It's almost $4. In, hmm. in Cal- our, our gas is far superior to the gas in Arizona, obviously. So the stuff we buy here in Michigan at two thirty nine a gallon is uh, is must it's be crap. really you're, it's you're, crap. It's 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 half water. <laughs> it must be. It must right. be. Okay. Great. All right. Yeah. Moving on here. There's a study from the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs in the November 2014 issue. Kind of had an interesting paper. Now it's from France. Yeah, that's where the coneheads were from. Yes, the, I remember. But in any case, so this is a study from France were a bunch of bunch of people who were thought to be intoxicated. They looked at the practice of the French physicians, and that obviously doesn't necessarily parallel what we do. 99% of patients suspected of being clinically intoxicated blood alcohols. The range of the alcohols was between 0 and 600, with 97% above the legal limit to drive. Now, I don't know what legal limit is there, but that's not the point of this. These people noted that based on how long the patients were in the emergency department, and catch this, the, average, the media, median length of stay, median length of stay was almost 19 hours in the ED, that when these people were discharged, a third of them, a third of them, knowing the straight-line metabolism of alcohol, would have had blood levels calculated to be over the legal limit. 
And the whole point of this paper, and I've not seen a paper like this before, that basically it's a warning that we've done before, basically saying, you know, patients need to be able to be go home with somebody and be able to be clinically okay. But the fact of the matter here is there's a risk that these people, if they got anywhere near a car, would substantially jeopardize patients, third parties, themselves, you, everybody else. Because this paper, despite the fact that they held these paper a long time, they calculated a third of them still had blood levels. Now, this is blood levels about above the legal limit to drive. That doesn't mean it's not above the legal limit to walk. But I thought you should know that. Yeah. Well, let's do some cases, Rick. What do you think? Because uh, pe- people like cases. Or let, let me let me hit you with just uh, two other court decisions that are very interesting that have taken place in the last month. One is Kurzak, K-R-U-S-A-C, versus Covenant Medical Center, Supreme Court of Michigan case. This isn't the appellate court. This is the Supreme Court. And this was a fight about the objective facts contained in a healthcare peer review incident report, and are they still protected? Now, here was the theory of the plaintiff, which these guys amaze me. They never cease having interesting, weird thoughts. And this uh, plaintiff said, you know, you barred me from getting any of these reports. How about if you only give me these reports so I can check the fact details, not the analysis. All I want to do is use it for the facts to make sure that you're not lying to me that there wasn't another set of facts in this case. Does that sound reasonable, unreasonable? Well, to make sure the suspense is killed completely, the Michigan Supreme Court said these materials are protected. Even if all you want to do is look and check the facts, you can't help but glean some opinion from a peer review report. So basically what the Michigan Supreme Court went on record and said was, sorry, This is protected material. It's done for the overall medical community and quality. Get your facts out of the out of the chart, but not out of the peer review reports. This is actually a victory for us, Rick, because if they'd open up every peer report, what you know is nobody put anything down in those peer reports. That's interesting. Interesting. I think that that uh, reaffirms something that we want to maintain because Peer review is something that I think often is not very vigorously taken on because we're too interested in, well, what if what if I'm next? So I think that in my experience, people can get away with a fair amount and still slip through the peer review process. By the way, certain states have taken an exact opposite view of this. State of Nevada, for example, peer review process has basically been emasculated. It's not only discoverable but it is admissible at the time of trial. So those mm. things have become worthwhile. Well, that's, that's worse than emasculated. That may be eviscerated. Yes, yes, this is no good. <laughs> okay, second case is Mellick versus William Beaumont Hospital. Court of Appeals decision, and this is another important one for emergency physicians because it reaffirmed the fact that a hospital's internal policies and procedures are irrelevant to a determination of whether a hospital or a physician is liable, has has violated the standard of care. Just because Hospital X says this is what we now do doesn't mean that that's the standard of care. I'm involved in a case right now which has to do with TPA, should it have been given at three hours, this or that, and one of the experts uh, opined that his hospital had gone to the 4.5-hour limit. Therefore, he could speak that that's at least, in some opinions, the standard of care. The other side said, no, I don't think so. This is three hours. This is what came out of the NIH. There's no official pronouncement on this. Back and forth and back and forth. Anyway, this hospital, uh, this, again, helped the defense because they said, you know what? An individual's policy does not constitute the standard of care. 
No, I think you're right. Um, there is the gap between evidence-based care and standard care. I mean, in some cases, the hospital policy may reflect evidence-based care, but unless the physicians agree and everybody is in, in tune with it, plus it's not just limited to what one hospital does, it's these are considered to be national standards. So one hospital could be have some fairly wacky standard. Well, the other thing is hospitals can be totally different. If you're the Mayo Clinic and what, what the standard is at two o'clock in the afternoon may have nothing to do with Ishpeming, Michigan. And I think that we need to respect the fact that there isn't just one form of practice in America. And by the way, as soon as we think there is, the science changes that. It's amazing to sit back and look at all the things we thought as medical students were absolutely a religion that have now proven to be just plain wrong. Yes, but Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there kind of the view that in many, many things at least, the standard of care, there are national standards. Everybody is going to give aspirin for chest pain. Nobody's going to argue about that. It doesn't matter where the heck you are. Yeah, when there's some technology-limiting kinds of things or expertise-limiting kind of things, maybe it would vary. But there are some things where everybody would get, agree this is the thing to do. I think, Rick, there's probably 5% or maybe 10% of our practice where the data is so good, we can all agree with that. But let me give you a, a case. 96-year-old woman goes to her family doc. He finds her blood pressure to be 154 over 88. Decides at 96, without a complaint, she goes on a diuretic. Do we think this is a good idea, Rick, even though there's a guideline from the coming out from the federal government which talks about pre hypertension. Does that sound like a good idea to you, Rick? I mean, I think this is craziness. Well, this is clearly a case of leave well enough alone. Absolutely. And by, just by the fact that you're telling me about it means that something bad happened. Yes, of course. And, and you know, uh, they stand up to go home and uh, fall and break their hip. Uh, now, was that, you know, she didn't have hypotension before. She did now and uh, broke her hip. All right, let's do a case which is out of our favorite journal, uh, Medical Malpractice Verdicts, Settlements, and Judgments. Here's a 21-year-old with a VP shunt. Now stop. <laughs> if somebody's got a shunt uh, and they've got a complaint, by the way, it's headache. Uh-oh, they didn't come in with their cut finger, their stub toe, their this and that. It's something that could be related to the elevated pressure. This patient was given pain medication and discharged. She returned the next day with a headache and the problem was recognized, okay, that what was happening? Well, the shunt was plugged in some way. Surgery was scheduled for four days later. Stop. <laughs> the patient has a headache. They were in once. Now they're back in again. You've been given a second chance by the way, there's no, there's no mention of whether they had papilledema, whether they'd lost venous pulsations in their eyes, none of this stuff. So they, well, When's they the last it. time you saw venous pulsations, doctor? Come on now. Every time I look at a uh, patient with a headache, because venous pulsations mean... I know what they mean. They do mean. not have, I do not have increased intracranial pressure. <laughs> anyway, surgery was scheduled four days later. Patient stayed in the ED the entire time. Oh, my God. She herniated the day before the surgery, and she was in coma until her death later that year. Suit was brought because of failure to recognize the increased uh, intracranial pressure and the need for immediate surgery. Despite the physician being dropped, it was alleged that the surgeon was overbooked leading to this delay. The surgeon was dropped. I mean... You know, I can barely control myself from breaking up the microphone at this moment in time. This is a $4 million case. You know what? I'd be mad if I was the family of a 21-year-old on a case. I could have sent them to London, England in that period of time and had them operated on. What the hell is this? Well, you know, I'm surprised the verdict was only $4 million. I mean, this is a 21-year-old who I, I kind of assume was normal when they came in and Function, basically, yes. And I think that 
I really, really, really believe that there is merit in attacking hospitals that are understaffed. And I think the fact that this lady was in the ER for four days is a reflection of a hospital that's out of control. I think that the surgery was scheduled for four days later reflects a hospital that is out of control. Or, you know, whether, maybe this surgeon was an employee of the hospital and that, and they've just got this surgeon just kind of booked uh, up to kazoo. Well, obviously, there are some patients that are more urgent than others, and this person should have been put on the front of the list. It sounds pretty straightforward when we're being Monday morning quarterbacks, and there's generally more to it than these cases, you know, tell us in these little summaries. But the fact of the matter is, is that I really believe that our interview with oh God, I'm blocking his name from UC Davis, right, right. Um, where this became an issue, I think that it makes a tremendous amount of sense when, in fact, hospitals do not respond to critical situations with regards to their staffing. Yeah. By the way, emergency doc doesn't get off completely here. If there's somebody for you in your department for four days, did somebody re-examine them? Did they uh, check them? Nobody goes from being normal to being dead. They have a decrease in mental status, you know, not documented. I think there's a lot of things wrong with this case. But what I would tell young colleagues is if you don't think it's right, it ain't right. <laughs> you know, I, I always love to call an attending and say, help me here. Help me understand why this is going on. And I, I can't believe this neurosurgeon. Wouldn't have told him to send him to another hospital, call the university, do something on a 21-year-old with a known shunt problem? I mean, that's just craziness to me. In fact, I think it's a lot of balls the first time the patient's in to take a shunt patient with a headache and give them pain medicine and send them home. Uh, that, I don't have that kind of courage. I just don't. I wouldn't have done that, Rick. No, I agree. Here's a quickie. A forearm laceration with a missed piece of glass, which was thought to be potentially related to a median nerve symptomatology, and mm-hmm. a $460,000 payout. $460,000 is, I think it's a fair amount of money for a, a, lot of money. a median nerve, could be, maybe kind of thing. But the, this gives us the opportunity to talk about glass and wounds. One of the problems that I have is that all of the literature says x-rays show glass and wounds. 96% of the time, right? And and, and um, so when you miss a piece of glass in the wound, I often wonder what are you going to respond to when the lawyer says, well, why didn't you get an x-ray? And yet I personally rarely ordered x-rays in glass-caused wounds. I think I probably used some kind of judgment that relates to how superficial the wound was, whether it went way down into corners and things like that and how deep it was. But, uh, and, you know, I got away with it over my career. But there is this issue of if you wanted to find it, doctor, all you had to do was take an X-ray. Well, I think that uh, you and I all use judgment on wounds. I mean, there's, there are people who are cut We can see everything, all that kind of stuff. I'll tell you a phrase that I always liked was, does it feel like there's something in the wound, particularly with hands? Any patient who said that, we're going to take a look and and see what's going on because they're they're telling you in front of you that there may be something wrong. Yeah, I think these cases are hard to defend, to tell you the truth, and here's a $460,000 payout. Now, should all is it the standard of care to do x-rays in all glass-caused wounds? No, I don't think it's the standard of care. But when you screw up, know that it's going to be hard to defend it. Yeah. Okay, want to do uh, another case here, Rick? Yes, Quick sir. one? Yeah. Here's an 18-year-old female who was found on the floor of her bathroom, I assume, by her parents. <laughs> I love uh, this one. It, well, yeah. It's taken to the emergency department. The emergency physician's exam was entirely ignorable, except the patient could not speak. She obeyed all commands during the exam and responded appropriately with head nods. She was discharged 
with a diagnosis of conversion reaction. (laughs) If you're going to put down a psychiatric cause, you better have a lot of proof that this is a conversion reaction. Why is this 18-year-old randomly converting? Converting. She was found on the floor of her bathroom, and now she can't speak. Do, isn't there a name for that in medicine? Don't we call that as a certain kind of non-fluent aphasia? I, I mean, there are causes for this that we probably should have thought about. Now, the next day, the patient was taken to another hospital. A better hospital. Well, well, where the diagno- the second hospital, Rick, is always the better hospital yes, exactly. because they have the retrospectoscope where the diagnosis of acute stroke was made and a vegetation was found on her mitral valve, which that sounds to me like one of the few treatable causes of stroke that I know about. She required attendant care 24 hours a day. Everybody settled except the first emergency physician. He was alleged to be culpable for not getting a neurologic consult and a CT scan. There was an argument about whether heparin would have actually been indicated and could have saved it. But the point is that that is a, an outcomes argument, not a standard of care argument. And you never do well in those arguments. It's interesting, however, in this case, the emergency physician did win the case. And there was no money paid to this uh, family. Well, I think, yes, I think the issue in this case that allowed this doctor to win is had you given heparin, this person would may not have progressed to this worsening stroke. And then so their argument was over heparin, no heparin, rather than you screwed up the diagnosis in the first place. Because the fact of the matter is, is if a person's down with this stroke like this, this is not considered to be a standard TPA kind of... Uh, no, no, no. So what are you going to do? You're going to just watch it kind of thing. Right. But, but you know... It th- doesn't change the fact that, that the initial decision to diagnose oh my her God. as a conversion reaction... See, I don't think that sort of thing plays well in front of a jury. I just don't. Well, you've seen a lot of cases over your life, oh. Greg, and I have seen my share... You can probably count the conversion reactions in our entire career on one hand. Right. And so it's one of those things where you've got to be unbelievably convinced that this is the case. And this is not the case where you would say, okay, go out and see a psychiatrist in the next couple of days. This is a case where you would, first of all, they're so interesting that you got to bring some other people in to see this person, uh, you know, with this reaction. But you're always going to have some kind of neurologist or somebody see this. This is a case where you're going to hold hands with somebody. You're not going to have the balls to send this person out on such a rare diagnosis that you... No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah is, I don't think so. This is emergency medicine so. 101. Yep, yep. Uh, this, the, and, you know, juries don't just don't like to hear that you wrote them off as being a, a quack. It was all in their head. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, They're right. Just, they, yeah, it's all they in their head. They love that one. Yep. Okay, Rick. I got a quickie. The first two are, these are really in primary care, but they think, they have messages related to emergency medicine as well. So a 55-year-old patient with heartburn, we already noted diagnosis. Yep. And bilateral arm pain with numbness and tingling intermittently for the last seven to 10 days goes in to see her primary care people. The PA diagnoses gastroesophageal reflux and gives antacids. 10 days later, she's still having the symptoms, but the clinic does not have somebody who can see her. So somebody calls in, a refill for a ranitidine prescription, <laughs> and the bottom line is she died like a day later. Now, this is a California case, and the settlement was $275,000 in a 55-year-old woman, which is, which is I think, honestly, Dirt cheap. one of the problems associated with limits. This, I find this extraordinary because the limit here on pain and suffering is $250,000, which has not changed for 20 years. And so a 55-year-old person, still you would think they have lost wages, uh, you know, that they're, they would take into the consideration here. Or, And I can't believe that there's this, this settlement is so low. Yeah, 55 
55 is the new 30, right? Isn't that the phrase? I mean, people got a lot of life left. You and I, we look back at 55 as our young days. You know, this is crazy. So I'm not quite sure what would justify this kind of $275,000 settlement in an MI that results in death. But in any case, that that's a one case. I got another one here. 40-year-old with shortness of breath, disease, and pain in the left calf. You won't believe this one. Yeah. Symptoms persisted on a revisit in three days, and a cardiac workup was scheduled, and the patient died of her PE two days before the cardiac workup occurred. Now, this is a more typical settlement, $1.1 million. It's like, I think it's a little uncharitable to kind of like make fun of some of these where this is the distillate of what occurred in a, in a criminal case. I mean, in a, in a civil case. And they're picking out the parts that they want you to hear about because these are usually submitted by one attorney or the other. So it's usually the, if you win, the plaintiff's attorney kind of, or the defense attorney submits these. So right. the fact is that they're not weighing all of the facts equally. And so it's, it's, it's not really fair to be a Monday morning quarterback. However, I'm going to be a Monday morning quarterback and say leg pain, shortness of breath, cardiac workup scheduled, death, $1.1 million. Yeah, that's th- this, is, uh, this is a case where may have it, may not have it, but at least that chart better show perk and somebody's rules were gone through to look at this thing. Because I can't picture... If you got a scoring system here of some kind, I'm short of breath. I'm relatively young. By the way, I've got a uh, a pain in my calf muscle. It's going to take this. This is a tough one. This, well, I, I think, think one this of is a the, tough uh, one to defend. Factors here is that this has happened in a in a clinic setting uh, where it may be more difficult to order tests, and there may be a certain reluctance to you know. Well, let's send you over to the hospital for a. <laughs> Uh, this test or that test kind of thing, or maybe after hours or something like that, where in the ER we can get this stuff 24-7. By the way, I I spoke earlier in the month at the Urgent Care Association of America. Now, we probably don't have any listeners who, who are a member of that, but believe me, the urgent care people are getting the exact same kinds of stuff because what's the difference? And, and now that urgent cares and clinics and 24 hour a day emergency department all these things are growing like weeds we're going to see more and more cases if you get into this idea that only minor and minimal disease goes to the urgent care you've set yourself up for disaster you see the nice thing about being on the intense or big side at the emergency department is your assumption is everybody's sick well at the urgent care and I've got plenty of urgent care cases, it looks like the assumption is people aren't sick. And, you know, uh, bad stuff can walk in there too, Rick, and I, I certainly have the cases to show it. Greg, I have one one quickie. Okay. Uh, didn't you, didn't you uh, want to do a couple of are – you, are you done everything that you wanted to cover? No, of course not. We never do. We've got cases that we could do this, you know, 24 hours a day. We got enough cases. Well, if you got a good case that you can cover in a couple of minutes. Yeah, I, I, I do. I've got two cases, but they both go back to our favorite diagnosis, and that is back pain. And oh, you bet you. I bet you have the same, one of the same cases I do. It's a back pain case. Go ahead. Well, this is a young man who comes in. Uh, admits to being a drug shooter. Mm, admits mm. to. Be- <laughs> we know the diagnosis. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. In any event, it's worse than that, Rick, because he's got a rapid heart rate, a fever, nausea, <laughs> vomiting, severe back pain. It's the flu that started three days earlier. There's a lot of that going around. Initial blood work showed an elevated white blood count and elevated glucose levels. Uh, I don't know if you need to go through this anymore, Greg. (laughs) Well, here's the fun part. Part of his workup is they did not do a urine for reasons I don't understand, but they did did blood cultures, which 12 hours later came back positive and nobody ever called the patient. I mean, you know, this just isn't right. This added to the list. (laughs) Yeah. You know, if we've got anybody listening who hasn't heard this from us, you never order a test 
you do not know what you're going to do with the results with. I, I mean, what, where are you going to send these results? Anyway, the plaintiff is sitting there with the fact that they've done this. It's been called from the laboratory. They build the patient's account already for it. He got billed before he ever got told that he has an organism floating around. And, of course, now, four, uh, three or four days later, what does he have? He he's, can't, in a, he's in a he wheelchair. He's in a wheelchair. And I think that that's just absolutely criminal. In, in another case, same venue, time to diagnose. This is a question of a Caudi Equina syndrome, $3.16 million. And this had to do with sitting around waiting on the MRI. You know, a patient did get admitted, but then it's on a weekend. There was nobody to read the MRI on a Saturday. It's like we live in, in 1950. Hello? All you got to do is push the button. You can have the MRI read in Bhopal, India, if you want to. You, there's no excuse for doing a study on a patient who you think is compressing their spinal cord and not having a reading in the next half hour. And in this case, they waited, it, it, done on a Saturday, not read. The radiologist read it on Monday. Oh, and good. By that, and that time, the patient is paralyzed. You I know, mean, it's hard this to is an awful of, case. It's, it's hard to conceive of that the ER doc would get an MRI it's, a, it's kind of a big deal to order an MRI in the emergency department kind of thing and yeah. and not get it read. Yeah. I, oh, my I, God. I, I hey, hate listen. This. I hate this. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think it's time for wine of the month there, Chief. All right. We're coming back to the U.S. We're going to talk about Oregon. The reason Oregon. is last time we uh, talked about Sicily and vines, which would ha actually had been planted at the time of uh, Hadrian. 122 AD, Oregon has actually not been in the wine business that long. California's been in it forever. But Oregon, this is really sort of the 50th anniversary of their big push into wine. And uh, the nice thing about Oregon is some of their great wines are cheaper than the Californians just because they come from Oregon and they don't come from some snooty place like Napa Valley. So in any event, last month we talked about old vines. I don't know that there's any advantage, by the way, to grapes from old vines as opposed to new vines. But what, what can I tell you? In any event, there is a grape in uh, Oregon, which is terrific. That's the Pinot Noir. Now, somebody did something crazy. They took the best, one of the best grapes for red wine, and they made a Pinot Noir Blanc. Why? I have no idea why they do that. But, but even the, the wine advocate says, stick to what you, what you do well. If you're going to have grow Pinot Noir, make red wine out of it. That's a good idea. And I'm going to tell you about one now, which I think is funnier than hell. And that is a wine called E-I-E-I-O. Now, when I looked at that, I didn't know how to pronounce it. When I looked at the bottle, I didn't know how to pronounce it. He says, no, just say it out loud. And I said, is that like, you know... Uh, on his farm, he had a pig, E-I-E-I-O. He says exactly, look at the name of the winemaker, and his name is Jay McDonald. This is his wine. But he does make the 2012 Pinot Noir E, which is just terrific wine, fabulous wine, for about 40 bucks a bottle. <laughs> Rick, stop it. Okay, you're getting to be like Mel now. In any event, 40 bucks a bottle, great wine, and you know what? Oregon deserves a little mention here, too, on our program. So go out and get that one. Thanks. All right, Gregory. That's uh, June 2015. All right. Okay. For signing off for June, it's Greg. And Rick. Bye-bye for now. See you. <laughs>